This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have two segments from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The first, which originally aired over the CBC on December 15, 1943, is a report from war correspondent Matthew Halton. It was recorded in Italy as Canadian troops crossed the Morro River during the fight against German soldiers. That battle occurred from December 9th to December 11, 1943. The second segment, which also aired this week in 1943, offers families advice on how to prepare for Christmas while living with the restrictions and rationing in place during the war. While this segment, of course, was aimed at Canadian families as it broadcast over the CBC, many of the issues were being faced by families in the United States as well as many other countries. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This is Matthew Halton of the CBC, speaking from Italy. I am speaking from an observation post near the Morro River. This OP is in the old wall of a little old town on the Adriatic. It it is 25 minutes past three. Five minutes from now... It's 26 minutes past three, Matt. What? Okay, thanks, Gordon. It's 26 minutes past three, it seems. Four minutes from now, there'll be a big, a tremendous artillery barrage laid down on the enemy positions across the Morro River from here. The barrage will continue intermittently for an hour or so, and at half past four, our infantry, I can't say which infantry, I'm sorry, will move across the valley, across the little river and up the other side of the valley to attack the enemy positions. For a long time today, we have watched battle, battle enough. It's quiet now, but I think you'll hear it. It's incredible that one is here watching a battle and that one should have such a dramatic view of a battle. And on such a gorgeous day, with a warm sun, and the Adriatic dancing in the light, war on such a day seems particularly tragic and unreal. Even when the enemy shells hit right on top of this OP, as they do sometimes, you'll probably hear some. It's so beautiful, I mean the view from here. The other side of the valley, is an enchanting patchwork of vivid reds, greens, and yellows, like like daubs of paint, like a painting by Cezanne. But the enemy is waiting there, only two to three thousand yards away. But now I'll take the microphone outside, because it's almost half past three.
inside that barrage. You must have heard it. Now it's ten minutes or so later, and I'm back inside the old wall. From the windows in this wall, I can see the gorge and the enemy positions. Right now, there's, there's an enemy plane up there. A plane? That was the Canadian officer with me, Gordon Hutton of Calgary. Right now, there is action everywhere, but I can't see this enemy plane. I see him now, or rather, I see his trail. There's a white trail of vapor in the sky. It's... It's an enemy observation plane, I suppose. It's so high that we can't see it. We can only see that clear-cut white trail of vapor. It's climbing now. It's shooting up like an enormous white comet. Gosh, it's a, it's a spectacular sight. I think... I don't blame it for, for shooting up. Yeah. Can you see those four Spitfires after? Oh, yes. Four of our aircraft are racing up at the Bosch. One is going ahead to cut him off. Now they're shooting. Perhaps you can hear the... The bursts. I don't know. The enemy plane is diving now, like a comet diving. And now we can see it. It seems to be crashing. No, I can't see what happened. But listen to our guns now. I'll take the microphone outside again. But it's nasty out there. Every half minute or so, the enemy throws a shell right at this OP. Sometimes an air bursting shell. Twenty minutes later, and the barrage seems to have fallen off. 
Just near us, incidentally, there are 126 German prisoners. I was with them when a squadron of our medium bombers were attacking their, their pals. The Germans were putting up a terrific attack barrage, and one of our planes was hit squarely and burst into flames in midair. The Germans cheered. They are troops of the German 90th Light Division, which was the elite of Rommel's Africa Corps in our old Libyan days. At least it was an elite, but it isn't now. The 90th Light ain't what it used to be. Not such good soldiers, but still they're pretty good. They give us a tough fight. They fought well. It's half past four now. That attack is going in. The guns are shooting again. I'd better take the mic outside. of a recording made at the Morrow River front today during a tremendous shoot on the enemy positions. It's dark now and all is quiet except for the machine guns across the valley. God knows what's happening down there. Our men are down there fighting in the dark. The enemy must have been dazed and bewildered by that barrage but still he kept firing back at us. The CBC engineers, Art Holmes and Lloyd Moore, recorded the enemy shells when they were falling right on us, or near us. There were some grim moments. Generally, there was one shell on us every half minute, but once there were four or five in close succession. Here is the actual recording. That was a Jerry shell which came very close. That was another. There were a few seconds be between each of these four or five shells, I think it was. And, and that time, we heard the nasty whine, but there seemed to be no explosion. It may have been a dud. another. I heard the explosion of this one deep down in the valley. It had just gone over our heads and fell in the valley. And that was a very nasty one. And you could hear a little black dog barking at the shell. This is Matthew Halton of the CBC speaking from Italy. As Christmas approaches, the kitchen becomes a hive of industry, doesn't it? It's the most fascinating room in the house to the small fry, too, with its warmth and tantalizing odors. But for Mother, unless she's a good organizer, the hive of industry is apt to become a frenzied flurry with everything piling up and nothing going the way it should. This year, more than ever before, it's the wise woman who has planned her menus well in advance with plenty of room for changes in case she has to, at the last moment, substitute foods which are available for those which aren't. 
With the celebration of our fifth wartime Christmas, we're very fortunate indeed to have so many foods available. No, I was speaking to some people the other day who had recently arrived in Canada from England. They were astonished at the luxury of life here. So much food, so little regard for waste. They said it was like coming to a pre-war world. In England, they said you just didn't dare leave food on your plate. You felt obliged to eat it all up whether you wanted to or not. Or if anyone was looking at you and they saw food on your plate, well, they made you feel like crawling under the table. Well, even though according to our conception at least, our celebrations will be very simple this year, they still require a great deal of planning, to say nothing about the actual preparations. If you haven't completed a Christmas work plan yet, let me tell you how the consumer section suggests that you work it out. To begin with, we will assume that you have the Christmas pudding, mincemeat, and fruitcake made and out of the way, or at least arranged for. Now, why not consider the whole Christmas weekend in your meal plan? Choose those menus for which a great deal of advanced preparation can be made and which are elastic enough to take care of any unexpected guests. A buffet-style supper Christmas Eve is ideal and easy to arrange with everyone helping himself. A pass-around far-side tea on Christmas evening is also easy on the hostess and people usually don't require a substantial supper after a Christmas dinner. We've found that it helps considerably to take stock of your shelves, check your staples and order anything you need a week before Christmas. That would be by next weekend. Or at the latest, by the Tuesday before Christmas. It means one less thing to have to fuss about later on, and will avoid that maddening last-minute search for poultry seasoning or some other thing which seems to have vanished from the pantry shelf at the crucial moment. You will have probably also placed your turkey order, or your chicken or goose order, whatever it is you're serving for the main course, by next weekend, or will be doing so the first of the following week. Other things which can be crossed off the list early are cranberry jelly. You can make it, pour it into sterilized molds or glasses, and store it well covered in a cool place until needed. Cookies which store well, salad dressings, and so on, can also be made in advance. <laughs> but I don't have to warn you to hide the cookies well, or they may disappear before the required time. Here's an elastic sort of schedule for Christmas week. Monday should really find you with the details of your week and menus completed your final shopping list made out, and everything under control. Tuesday, you might complete as much of the shopping as possible, leaving only the perishable foods to be picked up later in the week. Wednesday should see the last of the baking completed. Pastry for mincemeat, tarts, cheese straws, etc. can be prepared, wrapped well in wax paper and stored in the refrigerator, ready to be rolled out and baked at a moment's notice. Thursday, the bread for the stuffing can be prepared. Friday, you can wash the salad greens, prepare the celery, make your carrot sticks, etc., and put them in the crisper in the refrigerator. Or, if you haven't a crisping compartment, a kettle or roaster with a tight-fitting lid may be used and stored in the icebox or a cool place. It will do the crisping job very, very nicely. The turkey, goose, or chicken may be stuffed Friday also though some people prefer to leave that for Christmas Day since it really tends to make the dressing a bit soggy. Some pudding sauces may be made the same day or the day before Christmas. Choose one of these that can be made the day before and so eliminate one more last-minute job if you like. Christmas morning, some of the vegetables may be prepared early, but please don't let them stand in water until you're ready to cook them. No one approves of that nowadays. They lose too much of their mineral and vitamin content. Instead, 
Compare those vegetables which don't darken on exposure to air, such as carrots, turnips, etc. Then wrap them well in wax paper or a clean, dampened towel. Put them in a bowl or pan with a lid and keep in a cool place, preferably the refrigerator, until you're ready to cook them. Of course, we don't recommend keeping fresh vegetables standing any longer than absolutely necessary, even this way, because of the destruction of vitamins that takes place. If you have a plan of your own to follow, you know how much easier it is on you. And instead of being a nervous wreck on Christmas Day, you can really enjoy the celebration as much as anyone. Well, good luck with your preparations, and good morning, everyone.